The Funambulist Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement, Episode 3, with Vicky Doe. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Vicky Doe, who is a former student at uh, City University in Hong Kong and now is a researcher here and was part of the Umbrella Movement as a uh, old guest in this uh, mini-series. Uh, hello Vicky. Hello. Uh, thanks for talking to me today and um, like every other guest I will ask you uh, where we are and why uh, you wanted to, me to come here to record this conversation with you? Uh, so we are in a school of creative media. Renan Shaw Creative Media Center is the formal name. And uh, of, uh, belong to City University of Hong Kong in Kowloon Tong. Uh, the reason that I uh, suggested that you come here to, to do an interview was that um, I think this building is a very important place for me because um, during my two years of my Master of Fine Art here, I spent a lot of time in this building. I do everything here, you know, like we have this studio. So we are actually inside that room, this studio room. You can see like people coming out. And um, so basically we just stayed here all the time. We do artwork. We, um, you know, we took film, we drink, we have like a drinking section over there sometimes we have hot pot we just like basically we just like move here and uh this particular building was also the place where um i spent a lot of time as well during the umbrella movement um first of all was to um do artwork so that i can participate in that movement right with my uh, hong kong friends and um secondly there was this I feel like this place is quite safe. It's still, you know, it's still kind of like a academic kind of place where you meet a lot of um, people with the same mind as you, and they have the same goal in the movement instead of, um, you know, go outside. Maybe you meet somebody who pro China and might beat me up or whatever. So it's like a, it's like a escape place as well. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. And we are surrounded by uh, artworks that has to do with. Uh the umbrella movement as well I mean uh, as the picture will show uh, um, and I forgot to say but you're you're a filmmaker and uh, and you're not from Hong Kong so you also have a, a different uh, perspective I suppose on the on the movement and you actually uh, uh, made a few films to uh, talk precisely about your your per- your own right. perspective uh, on the on the movement and actually using even Vietnamese language to right. uh, to, to to make the to film describe it. Can can you tell us? About yeah, that? sure. Um, so basically, the film was actually um, a part of like a bigger picture because um, I went there. Basically, I went there mostly every day with my friends. I befriended with a couple of Hong Kong friends who are also activists. And uh, so after school, after work, whatever, we came there. And uh, I took my camera with me as usual, and I just like filming, because at that time I was trying to film, you know, like somewhat like a reflection of myself in a city, you know, shadow kind of thing. 
And uh, at that time, I was thinking, why not just do it here, right here? Because we have, we have a lot of people, a light, and it's, it's, it's romantic in a way. It's funny, though, because I'm, I think because I am like the foreigner, so I can romanticize everything, which like the local, they don't really think of it that way. Uh, so the language itself um, is Vietnamese because during that moment, though, I think of my country, And I was at a time I was like, dude, like I really want to do it in Vietnam. I wish there was, there was like a couple of protests in Vietnam as well, but not a lot of people participated. A lot don't don't care, you know. And um, no students showed up. So I was there in Hong Kong, and I was with my friends supporting um, the people of Hong Kong to fight for their basic needs. You know, the thing is that. Um, so according to my friends, uh, people of Hong Kong used to be really apathetic to politics because politics itself is a very um, abstract term. You don't really think about it. You don't really like talk about it unless it takes something away from you. You know, like if you can't afford a house anymore, uh, your neighborhood has been uh, gentrified, like Sham Shui Po, like um, like a lot of places in Hong Kong that belong to like the old neighborhood, the old value that people actually care about. For example, Cantonese language and uh, the freedom of education, you know, um, that people are fearing is going to be taken away after um, now 2047, right? So um, before that, though, so to, in 2012-something, the group, uh, like the that student group, They resisted, they protested against what they called national education that mainland Chinese government was trying to implement in Hong Kong. So what they did was that um, they wear plaque and they were doing like a cross-hand sign to protest that thing. And so a couple of years later, there was um, like a white paper from mainland China saying that, okay, so the next... Um, election in 2017 forward onward um, you can like vote for your chief executive but like the chief like the candidates had to be vetted by Beijing and so the student was like this doesn't make sense because Hong Kong is really turning into a mess already it's like most of my friends are from Hong Kong they are like late 20 early 30 a lot of them cannot afford a house so that was the main reason why people um, actually wanted to participate or those who don't really participate but they want something to change within the city and I think um, the reason the reason that a lot a lot of people broke down broke out of the street to um, to spend three months out of the street to protest against um, China against Hong Kong government was I guess was a um, tear gas incident where the police started to um, act violence against the students and a lot of them as I was told that were shocked I was like the, they were so I don't know I just feel like Hong Kong people used to be really because they used to believe in the police a lot and now everything was like uh, scattered and that's why, that's why they, they do that and then um, at that time I was thinking about that and then I was like having my camera with me and I was thinking about my own country so basically the film itself is It's more like um, self-essay, like a self-portray in a way, like the CD and me kind of movie, but it was made in that particular context. 
that's yeah. Mm. And can you maybe describe what you were saying then? Because that's also something we haven't really talked so far uh, in the previous interviews. But uh, and I think many many people have seen many photos of uh, of uh, of the occupation and uh, in, in uh, Admiralty uh, and then in Mongkok. But can uh, can you simply just describe uh, what you were filming and what you were seeing back there? I was filming, um, so back then I was filming um, mostly the, um, like a town, the protest town at Admiralty, right? Um, I was, actually I was staying there and I was just trying to capture everything, you know, how people were, of course they have like artwork as well and banners and bandrons and everything that say we need true democracy, we need universal suffrage, stuff like that at that time. And uh, But what I was seeing was that they have that community of people helping each other and they were all like um, gathering together to look forward to something that they actually know not going to happen. But they do it anyway, they take back the city. So what I was trying to capture was the um, more like an ambience of that place. And um, oh wait, but the film itself was actually like a letter to my mom. That's I think that's more important because um, my mother, just like any other, you know, um, people who had benefit from the current government of Vietnam and who always like watch um, state-owned media, they have really like they really have like a wrong idea of what protest is actually about they think of protest as like you know you're actually overthrown in a government with violence with blood with um you know you're just like um making a mess our city and um my mother and i at that time didn't talk to each other because i think she knew that i participated in the protest she didn't want to bring it up and i didn't i just don't want to um, at that time i didn't i just do not, I did. I just didn't want to actually inform her, text her, and say, "Hey, mom, I'm I'm I'm, I'm protesting." So I did that at work, so that I can feel better about myself. That hey, I'm actually telling my mom that this is what I think, and this is what a lot of people, even uh, they are not from Hong Kong, are thinking as well. And I bet a lot of Vietnamese people. A lot. I met some Vietnamese tourists. They came here and they was like, it is so, I, I'm so jealous about these people because they, they can do that. At least they still have like a little bit of freedom to do that. You can't do that in Vietnam. So, um, so yeah, that was, um, that was a, basically a letter from my mom in Vietnamese, of course, about uh, what happened. So in that letter, I say, so here is, you know, the space that the people gather together and they were all angry. They were all sad. They were all like most of them, even the police, they were just exalted, and you're, you're just um. And the people, basically, and the people who were having power, they didn't see it. My mom was one of them, so yeah. Maybe con continuing to do the bridge with Vietnam, could you could you tell us briefly uh, about your current research because you just came back from a, a, a research trip in uh, northern Vietnam, right? Could you tell us about it? Sure, sure. Um, I just came back from like a 10 days trip to Hanoi and Haiphong. Um, 
well, I came to Haiphong first. Haiphong was Haiphong is the port city that hundred kilometer from um, east of Hanoi, and um, I came to Haiphong to meet like a couple of boat people who uh, in the eighty, I think late eighty, came to Hong Kong. And uh, they stayed in Hong Kong for a couple of years, some of them three years, some of them like eight years, ten years. And eventually, either they were too tired and they asked to um, to be sent back home, or they were forced to be repatriated back to their hometown. And um, at that time, actually, in 1988, Hong Kong, amongst like other part of asylum at that time, had that um, action plan Basically, what they say was that if you're not a political asylum, uh, a political seeker, sorry, political asylum seekers, and if you come here because you just want to get to the third country because of economic reason, you're not gonna get it. You're not gonna. You're gonna be like either stay in Hong Kong and be screened every day or whatever, or you're gonna be sent back. So um, that was somewhere in. Um, August is that uh, either August or June I'm sorry I don't really remember and uh, that a lot of people came after that and they were screened and a lot of them are from Haiphong that city right um, and like a lot of them spent the time there raising the kids there in Hong Kong there were like 36 about 36 um, closed camps in Hong Kong at that time to uh, accommodate these people because Hong Kong was the second um, most populous uh, part of asylum behind Malaysia for Vietnamese to, to flee at that time. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so um, I came to... Actually, I tried to research about both people in Hong Kong, but I realized that there was a group of people that never been mentioned. Because basically the, the exodus, the history of exodus was never mentioned in Vietnam as, oh, at all. And a lot of people in Hong Kong right now, they didn't really know much about that history as well. They was like, well, is there like Vietnamese people in Hong Kong? I didn't see a lot. And if you walk through the street of Hong Kong right now, it's easier for you to recognize who is from uh, mainland China, who is from um, the Philippines, Indonesia, because they speak the language. But for Vietnamese people here, they're more like, you know, invisible citizens. They blend it in really well, and um, they speak Cantonese. They change their name. I was trying to, um, I was trying to talk to them, but um, it was a little bit difficult because, um, first of all, they don't know who I am, right? I, I look like totally super different. I look absolutely not both people, and I'm from the south, and they was like, I don't know if I should trust you, blah blah blah. So, yeah, it was a long, long um, term research for me. So that's why I come back to Haiphong and um, talk to people and to see why did they get sent back in a way, yeah, what happened, da da da. And then um, I spent like, a couple of days in Haiphong. Then I came to Hanoi for um, meeting with prominent, some prominent activists, political activists in Hanoi. And um, for me, it was the second time that I I went to Hanoi. The first time was. Um, the beginning of the year before the protest in Vietnam in uh, May, I went there and I was just trying to like get 
myself acquainted with the city, see how people live and so on. So, and the second time, this time I came to meet with people and I tried to learn about Hanoi in a different way. Uh, learn about Hanoi in the way that you know the government don't tell you to know about Hanoi because Hanoi is the city that Vietnamese communist government polish a lot, right? So like if foreigners you want to get to know Hanoi, you have to like really seek through a lot of layers of bureaucracy. You really don't know about Hanoi. So I was just so the first time I was just trying to like look try to see. Uh, geology, like the thing, like what made the city, and the second time was to meet with people from different um, cultures. I will say, like perspectives of Hanoi. So I met with some um, activists, and I sometimes I talk with like communist officers. Not a big fan, but still, you know, they're part of the city. So yeah, I stay in Hanoi for um, four days, and. Um, there was that was pretty interesting because it was it was like so the way civil society in Hanoi work is really different from the south because in Hanoi everything is more like connected. Hanoi is a smaller city than Saigon. Everything is connected and people like organization individuals they kind of know each other and they work in a more systematic way. So after that I was thinking say if anything like the if there's any like reformation of Vietnam, whatever is gonna happen in Hanoi. That's that's how I think. Hmm. I'm kind of off the topic, right? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's me. It's me who oriented you towards towards that, and I think it's it, uh, it's very good that we have that on tape. Uh, but maybe going back to to the umbrella movement and to conclude this conversation, uh, could you tell us a little bit how? you see the present and the future of this uh, political impetus, so to speak? Um, I think if you look, okay, so there was um, legal legislative council uh, election earlier, I think last month, and uh, before, prior to that, man, like people were, so after the umbrella movement, people were like, we fell so bad, you know, nothing changed, and now a lot of family broke up. People just like don't have faith in each other, and I don't have faith in Hong Kong anymore. People just like trying to um, seek immigration elsewhere of Hong Kong, and um, and there was um, but the good thing after that was that people, even the people who didn't really care about the government system at that time back then, they started to talk about it, right? So you have like. Um, local shopkeepers, local shop houses, like people who sell things on the street, they talk about that. They talk about like, um, okay, so this is what happened. We can't buy a house. We can't leave. We can't afford to buy to pay for um, our necessity anymore. And um, so, like two years passed by, and there were like there were even like mini kind of protests as well, like the protests against. Um, parallel trading, right? Like people from mainland China to come here and buy a lot of milk powders in Tin Moon. And there's still like people talk about it. people protested about that and also like people protest about against the um northeast of Hong Kong development. And also there's a lot of local activists where they try to like uh, saying not like really confront against the Hong Kong government or China government, but they try to 
say keep small business local small business from not uh, disappearing you know like they try they try to fix little little thing and um so what i would say was that uh, and after that sorry and after that there was like another kind of movement where a group of localist people or they call they call themselves localist people um fighting for hong kong independence and I was talking to my friend the other day. I was like, um, "Do you think independence would be feasible? It would be like possible." They say that might be one, but um, you know, like not a lot of Hong Kong. Like that's just a minority of Hong Kong people think that way. But um, I would say there's a, there's that kind of like inception about that idea already. That identity of Hong Kong, as in we are Hong Kong, we are Hong Kong people. We are not like Hong Kong Chinese, in a way. So people have more um, awareness about where they come from. Um, <clears throat> but I was, I don't know, I don't feel that optimistic about, you know, independence or whatsoever in Hong Kong. Because is it, is, um, Hong Kong itself has really close tie with China. And like, not like, uh, sorry, um, not only a lot of, Hong Kong people were immigrants from mainland China at that time, which means they still have like family and um, a lot of business in China. So basically, the Hong Kong is economically dependent in China. Um, there were like a couple of young people that want to break through that, but I would, I would love to see that happen, but I don't think that's gonna happen. The independence thing. Um, but the picture of Hong Kong, I would predict, would be um, Hong Kong people, our Hong Kong Legislative Council would be able to keep their veto power for a little long while, and at least they could start to um, fix things in the social nexus, for example, housing, how do they keep welfare for homeless people, how do they fix their racism? How do they fix, you know, like, because all that kind of thing, because, like, there's a lot of ethnic minority people in Hong Kong as well, which, and also, like, the, the domestic workers. So basically, you have that groups of people asking for this, and um, and they know that they, 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 they have more power than before because people started to notice that, right? So um, I was only see that, if there's any changes that gonna be within the people itself, I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but um, that's how I see it. Okay, well, Vicky, thank you so much for this uh, super useful uh, input uh, and perspective on the on the movement of yours, and uh, and uh, I'm very glad to have you part of the series. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you.